Zig coming into the top of the interview. Today on the show, we have David Thomas of Hair Ubu. Um, David Thomas is one of the most relentless, hardworking musicians who advocates pure art. Parabu has always been one of those bands that have taken how you hear music, how you perceive it, and flipped it to make it seen and heard a different way. Um, the quote David Thomas from an interview he did, where he's talking to the interview, he takes his coffee cup and says, this is music, and then flips over, and this is Parabu, and shows you the bottom of the cup. Parabu's always showing a different perspective of what we know, or at least what we're used to perceiving as music. I was super excited about this interview. Um, Perubu, as a band, has one of the most dense libraries of a website that I've ever come across. It's super well done. If there's anything you want to know about Perubu, that website's got it. Perubu has just come out with a new um, new live album by the Order of Mayor Pollocke. Um and it's got a really cool red and black vinyl. They've also been handling the pandemic in a very cool way. They're doing this uh, variety show called DPK TV. It comes out every Sunday, three times a month. They take one week off. Within these videos, they share videos from fans. They do this thing called Lyric Library, in which fans send in videos of them interpreting lyric, uh, the lyrics from Dave Thomas songs, the Parabu songs, in a visual way. It's really cool, and it's a really unique uh, way to interact and engage with a fan base and a community and they do it every week and apparently the fans hang on hang out in these meetings for hours afterwards and they're coming from all over the world and also they show rare concert clips they dig up out of their archives it's a really really cool like more bands should be doing that because that'd be super super rad to get some insights into groups like that it's a really cool and to be able to see and talk and converse with the the the, the band members it's really really rad DPK TV. You can get that through their Patreon. Um, before we get to our interview, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44, Studio 44 CLE. If you have any audio, visual, or streamed needs, Studio 44 CLE can make my cat sound louder. And we can put some reverb on it so they sound like they're in space. That would be cool. Studio 44 CLE. You can reach them on Facebook or Studio 44 CLE at gmail.com. Also, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep uh, reaching out to cool people and sharing cool insights with you guys. Um, we are now on the social medias as well. We got the Instagram and the Twitter, and if you can follow us on that, be all up to date and see some clips from all these interviews that maybe you'd find interest in somebody you didn't know about. All right, without further ado, we're going to jump into the interview. Here's my conversation with David Thomas. What's studio time look like for you? What is what look like? You said you're in studio time. What's that? What's that like well, for I'm you? Just, I'm just I'm mixing something, so I'm just you know I I, 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 I don't have I can't hear you know I don't I the I put the phone away and you know I'm just you know I'm just impossible to get a hold of. So you know, Kirsty had to come down. She doesn't live far. You want coffee? Yes, I'd like a coffee, please. Awesome. So, um, mixing new stuff or yeah, yeah, remixing? I was, I, was, I was just about at ready to take a break anyway. Perfect. Perfect. Were you mixing, uh, remixing some of the old stuff for the box uh, that you got coming um, out? Yeah. Well, there's there's a, some series of releases coming up this year, and of of older albums, and um, I was just uh, 
well, actually, I was uh, remixing Saint Arkansas, but I'm not sure if that's. I mean, I I was just doing it because I nearly was done with it, and so I finished up the other things, and I was doing that. I mean, it's hardly very interesting, you know, the details of my, you know, everyday life. Going back and remixing it has to be like has to point out some things maybe you didn't hear as clearly before. Oh, sure. Well, plus my um, my software has improved and my ability to use the software has improved. And, um, you know, every album I go in with a, a sort of a set of, oh, I don't know, a set of rules or something. And um, uh, some of those rules are good and some aren't so good. So, you know, remixing it, I'm, I'm able to take a fresh look at what the rules were and, um, and, you know, and, 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 um, judge, you know, judge what, whether they were good or not, you know? Gotcha. Is it rules by like, are you saying like rules, like as of like new, new ways you can like, Well, I've never, I've never, I've never recorded any two albums the same. Um, there's always, for instance, St. Arkansas, basically um, goes back, some of it goes back to the Raygun suitcase where I didn't use any microphones to record. I was just using speakers, you know, that hmm. Paul had modified. Yeah. You know, From and Suma. so the, all the all the drums in St. Arkansas are recorded through a, um, principally a 12-inch speaker laid on the floor and a couple room mics. So there's only three or four in the box, in the box, what we called it. So there's only about four mics for the drums. And I mainly just use um, the 12 inch speaker. So um, that was a, you know, that was a, you know, I decided I wanted to, I wanted to go that way with that album. And that has those, that was like, a rule as it were of the album and that has certain limitations and it has certain strengths so in the remix stage i'm able to sort of go you know to modify somewhat i mean i can't magically create more microphones right you know right. inputs but I, I i frankly i wouldn't want to um because but, you know, in, in some albums, I decide to leave all the spikes in, you know, and some albums I don't, you know, it just really, it's, it just varies. I, I just don't like doing the same thing twice. So I come up with various scenarios. I think that that's awesome because leaving, um, or I guess boundaries make, uh, you have to be creative within those boundaries. And setting well, yeah. it up different every time is a really good exercise to keep There's everything. There's no fresh. such thing as a boundary-free situation. Right. There's always a boundary, you know, somewhere, you know, and it depends on how it depends on whether you decide to manage the boundaries or just accept whatever there is. And I've always tried to manage the boundaries to some degree or another, depending on my skill level and depending on you know, number number one, two, 
I don't know. I think I've recorded something like 30 albums in between solo and Perubu. Right. You know, on very little money, frankly. You know, I don't have, I've never had, with the exception of the Mercury, the Fontana years where I wasn't in charge, you know, I was working with producers. I've never, you know, I've never had enough money to do anything. So, you know, I have to, I have to, you know, there are boundaries, there's financial boundaries. I can't spend all the time I would like doing whatever the particular thing is. So it's, I don't, I don't resent it. I don't regret it. I don't, whatever it, it's just part of the deal. Right. You know, it's, it's what I do. Because you, uh, you said in another interview that some of the early Ubu albums took 36, 38 minutes to record in their entirety. Well, I don't think it was that little, no. That but little? Okay. They were, they were, you know, I was maybe talking about a single or something. Okay, but, okay. You know, it, it, it's, they didn't take long, no. It was pretty pretty cut and dried, you know. We, we, we had, you know, it's like with the singles, you know. We would go in and, you know, we, we all we could afford was you know, maybe an evening, you know, certainly at Suma, we could, I mean, at Cleveland recording and then, right. Suma, well, I don't know, you know, Cleveland recording and Suma was an expense, you know, a relatively expensive studio. So we could afford to go in one night, you know, yeah. in which we had to record two songs and mix them. So there wasn't any, there wasn't, you know, and that wasn't even, that's not a, that's not a day. That's a night, right. you know, from like 6.30 or 7 to 11 or 12. Ken didn't like to go too late, you know. So, you know, it was pretty pretty darn quick. Yeah, that studio time eats it up. Now, is that with, um, when did when did you start working with Paul at Suma? When did we start with Paul? Yeah, yeah, because you mentioned Ken. Oh, uh, well, Paul, Paul, um... You know, Paul was always around because he was Ken's son and an assistant engineer. Um, you know, Ken basically retired after New Picnic Time, and um, and and so um, we asked. You know, so Paul took over. You know, he became the engineer, sort of. You know, they he was. You know, he wasn't exactly a producer, but we left so many decisions to him and. <laughs> We, we used so much input from him, you know, that, um, you know, we, we usually would say he was a producer of the thing, you know. Um, uh, but the Hammonds, they, they were very reticent to ever suggest anything. I mean, they, you know, they might, engineering-wise, they might, um, you know, they might, you know, do some EQ things and that sort of stuff to make it all better. But um, as far as telling us, suggesting what uh, the, what we do or, you know, how we do things or they just simply would not get involved in that. And, you know, it, it would, it would take, it would take incredibly precise. It's like talking to computers. You would have to mm. ask incredibly concise <laughs> questions and then usually have to rephrase them to be even more concise and then you know they might actually give you an answer you know they weren't being 
hard-nosed about anything, but they wanted you to, to do what you were doing and what you wanted it to do, wanted it to be. And they would, you know, step in to, you know, if something, some frequency was out of whack or something, they would, you know, they would address that, you know, but, but as far as whether a part was good or not, or whether it was in time or not, you know, it was like the famous Ken Express, when we went into Final Solution with Ken, which was the first record we did with him at Cleveland Recording. And, you know, we said, well, you know, is it in time? Is it in tune? And, you know, he said, it doesn't matter. Who cares? You know, and we said, what? And he said, it's got the groove. It's it's there. It, yeah. it, it has vision and it has poetry. It has the groove. Don't screw with it. It's fine. You know, and so that sort of that sort of was the turning point in a lot of well, I mean, that just is like, well, oh, sure, you know, okay. <laughs> well, no, I mean, because he was, you know, he was for us a very famous engineer. You know, he had done lots of stuff. He had done yeah. all that Terry Knight stuff, Cleveland Orchestra, you know, Time Won't Let Me, on and on and on. Nobody but me by the human beings, you know, uh, Incense and Peppermints. I, I think it was him, the him or there was that other one. I can't remember. And tons of stuff. The James Gang, for goodness sake. You know, so, you know, he was like, he was as much as we had ever run into somebody who would be, you know, a guru, a legend, a, a star, you know, and he was just saying, it's fine. It's got the groove. What do you, what do you care? You know, no, you know, what does it matter? You know, if it's in tune or in time or whether you drop a beat here or this, this note is out of tune or on and on and on, who, you know, I wouldn't touch it, you know? So that was very meaningful to us. That's good. coming from coming from a legend and being like we're doing it right. You sure? Like when you go in there, that guy is kind of the 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 first person to hear it back. So I can see how like going in and recording and them being like, yeah, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like being well, if you, almost if you sat there, if you sat there and said that snare beat in bar forty seven, <laughs> right? Is that late? And he would say yes. You know, and they said, well, maybe we better fix it. And he said, why? Why bother? You know, I mean, it's not that he was sloppy or lackadaisical. Yeah. It's just that, you know, and if you wanted to fix it, you would fix it. And frankly, it wouldn't make any difference except maybe the drummer would be happier, you know, but it, it, it you know, he, it all had, you know, and if, if all those things were true and it didn't have the groove, he would say, you know, after some precise questions, he would say, it, it doesn't have a groove, you know, or something, but you would have to really, 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 really phrase your questions. Absolutely spot on. You couldn't just sort of lackadaisically say, what's your opinion? You gotcha. know, you say, I don't have an opinion. <laughs> well, that's cool. He's looking at the whole thing as a, as a piece, not, you know, hyper-focused because some engineers do get hyper-focused and they're like, yeah, well, there, there's a, you know, I, I've worked with both kinds of engineers you know, one of the most infamous moments of my life was in recording Worlds in Collision with Gil Norton, who did the Pixies and right. hundreds of other things. I don't know. And and um, and I was in the vocal booth, and, and I can't remember the song, but I was singing it, 
and he would, we would stop and he would say, oh, well, this note's out of tune. Can, can we just drop you in for that? So I would drop in for that. And then he would say, well, wait a minute, this other note's now out of tune. And we would drop in for that, you know, and this went on and on and on. And, and he, you know, finally on the last day of the session, he, he said, you know, I should never have told you what to do because I don't understand what you do. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's beyond me. You know, you can fix one note and another note is all of a sudden wrong. You fix that and, and all of a sudden the other note is wrong, right. you know, and it, and it, and if you, if you're just, you know, I went off and recorded some B sides kind of producing them myself. And, and I came back and he said, well, why can't you sing like that for me? You know, and I said, <laughs> hell, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I, at that point, I, no, I liked Gil and it yeah. was, you know, but, um, but it was like, well, then why don't you stop trying to tell me what to do? You know, it was the thing I was thinking, but um, I didn't say it. And I was being very polite and under control with him because I liked him. It was, you know, it was fun. That's that's awesome. It was fun that I don't know the, the micromanaging of it kind of contradicts what um, what Paul was doing as opposed to uh, immersing in the experience, trying to control it. And uh, well, that's, both, both both things are, are have validity. I mean, right. you know, I'm I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just you know I'm just describing the Hammonds, and we appreciated that. Now I also appreciated. Like in Cloudland, working with Stephen Haig, who is my favorite produ of all the producers, you know, and and he would sit there. That was that was the first early days of, of multi-track digital, and he would sit there in the most expensive studio in in London, you know, with two 24-track um, digital recorders linked up, and he would sit there hour after hour, moving one drum beat you know, a half a half a fraction to the left or to forward or back and on. He would go through the entire track doing that. And, oh, this this snare beat is better than this one. You know, just the tim timbre, timbre of it, you know. So he would do all that. He would sit there. And I want nobody else was there. It was just me, Stephen and and I don't know, the the assistant and, you know, the guy that went to get the coffee and all that. You know, and I just sat there and watched him amazed, you know, just fascinated by the whole thing and by the utter dedication to 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 the particular vision and the particular way of working. And, you know, this was exactly the opposite of the Hammonds, what I appreciated every bit as much. That's just, I guess it goes back to a different, different set of uh, the, uh, boundaries in a way. Yeah. Um, yep. the, the kind of bounce it, bounce it up or bounce it back. Um, let's talk about kind of going up into recording with, uh, recording with Paul and then, um, Crock and Bush. Do you recall the drink? No. You don't recall the, the drink from the oh, Viking Saloon? <laughs> My bad. It was old Bush. Old Bush. Um, from the Viking it. Saloon. <laughs> it was a Viking Saloon. They had a drink and in the early, in the days of my media celebrity, and um, it was called the Crockabush, but I've got no idea what it was. So what kind of got you in that media? Like, what, what led to writing 
Um, I know you you have a family uh, with academics in it. Was there a certain like um, literature or, or writers that were yeah. celebrated in the house? Well, number one, I I had read most stuff that you read in college by the time I was eleven or twelve. That was number one. I was very I was very well read. Number two, I was intending to be. I, I had an, a, an affinity for microbiology, um, especially molecular interactions with membrane cell walls. And this was if my, within, a, within, within a few weeks of me going into freshman high school, the, the biology teacher who has been a former university teacher and she was old and kind of just winding down by yeah. going to a high school, um, started giving me pri in private tuition. You know, I was taking wow. a college level course in my freshman year. I, ha I was in, I had an intu intuitive grasp of it. I didn't even have to study. I'd do a couple experiments and I'd say, oh, well, this chemical here, this will do that and that. And she said, well, yeah, I, you know, that's in the next chapter. And I said, I haven't even read the last chapter, but it's <laughs> obvious to me, you know, so so this was my career path. I was going to be uh, a microbiologist with that's probably with that specialty because I was in, I had an intuitive grasp of it. It was easy for me, you know. And and um, I, and she gave me, and my grades with her were always A plus, which it was totally unheard of, you know, ever, you know. And, but she couldn't grade me any higher, you know. So. At some at a certain point along the way, which I don't want to talk about it, just about around the time I went off to college, I became disillusioned with it. And um and I dropped out and started started hitchhiking across the country. I hit, called my parents from the Mississippi River and said, I've left college and I'm going out to the West Coast and and uh, I'll be back in a couple weeks, you know. So I came back and I had to do something. So um, I got a job at this local, local, because I knew the guy from, from college or something or other. And um, the scene, you know, this sort of weekly thing. And um, so I got a job doing layout, you know, which was on wax tables and you get the printer gives you, sends you these strips of yeah. copy on, photo type paper and you you cut those you know you cut those that those strips into columns and whatever you have to do to lay it out and you lay it out all on this thing you know and so this is what i was doing but um you know and i have a bottle of vodka you know i was i don't know 18 or 19 maybe have a bottle of vodka and i drink most of it over the course of a tuesday evening precisely laying this stuff out ultimate just per perfect straight lines everywhere you know drunk as a skunk but it didn't matter you know but um um and you know then we'd go to the local bar local corner bar which is uh, some sort of like eastern european ethnic bar and he'd buy me shot fish bowls of beer and we'd have debt charges which is a you know, you get a shot of something and you leave it in the shot glass and you drop the shot glass and all into your fishbowl of beer and you drink that. So, you know, it was pretty hard, hard, hard living sort of stuff. And um, and very soon I began to correct because the writing was really terrible. 
and I began to correct the writing and um, the grammar and this and that. And sometimes even the writing itself was just so poor, I'd start cutting, cutting it up. Now, this is all like with ex razor exacto razor blades, cutting out apostrophes to make, you know, to make apostrophe S or something where he they hadn't done it, you know. And so, you know, the, the publisher hauls me in and says, look, why don't you be the copy editor, you know, um, as well? And then we won't have all this trouble and it'll all go much easier. So I became the copy editor as well. And I began rewriting all the copy because it really was frankly not very good. And um, so after a while, he hauls me in again and he says, well, why don't you just write this stuff in the first place, you know, <laughs> and be the copy editor and do the layout. Why don't you just, you know, we'll, we'll all save each other time, you know. So I began to write. And the only thing, you know, the stuff I write about was music. So, you know, there you go. Gotcha. When did the... So through the scene, which is still going now, um, through the scene, when did the great Bawa death band? Well, that was in um, 74. That was in 74. Some other people on the, you know, I had some buddies on the paper and, and um, you know, mostly who did circulation, so drive, drove bundles of the things around. And I had a good friend named Charlie Weiner. Um, who was aspiring to be a comedian. And, you know, we talked to him and he said, oh, why don't we have a band, you know? So, we, well, you know, we'll use it to promote the, you know, we'll do this thing where it'll be kind of a promotion for the magazine and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So we did that. So that was the great Bawa. And, and then that somewhere along the line, we decided to, to, to you know, let's have a, let's, let's, let's do a more serious band you know, because there's a lot of, com not comedy, but satire and right. you know, sort of bonzo dog band. And, uh, I don't know, it's satire. And so we thought, oh, well, why don't we have a real band, you know, with sort of a hard rock band, you know. And, you know, we, were, we all love the MC5 and the Stooges, mostly the MC5. And, um, you know, we started doing that sort of stuff. And that... Then along the, and, and I changed the name to Rocket from the Tombs, you know, and one didn't, one night I was hanging out at the Grapes of Wrath, which was across the street from the Viking Saloon. It was a folk club. And Lochner, Peter Lochner comes up to me and says he wants to be in my band. And I thought to myself, well, gee, this, I think this guy is a real musician. Um, uh yeah i guess so you want to be in the band sure i'll come around and we'll jam and see what happens so that began that that episode so um peter he would play there doing acoustic gigs a lot yeah he was doing a lot of folk stuff and uh he uh was he i did he start off as a sound man for rocket for the tombs before no, he joined okay tim wright. tim wright was a sound man oh okay okay and uh now, did Peter, he, he played guitar and bass, or did he switch between the two, or was that in Pirubu? No, he played guitar. Gotcha. Awesome. And he was, a, Peter was a character, too. He was pretty well-read. How did, how did your guys, was, uh, was it just that he came up to you and was into what Rocket for the Tombs was doing and wanted to get involved? Because he had some... Well, he, um, had seen, he had seen us play, and he wanted to be in the, 
he wanted to join the band. I don't know, you know. Nice. Um, and I, my, you know, I, I was sort of semi-shocked that a real musician would want to play with us. But I thought, so I said, yeah, sure, come around. Let's jam and see what happens. Now, Rocket from the Tombs, you guys opened up for television. And I think yeah. Peter, he had like some connection with a... Uh, uh, um, Richard um, I th Lloyd and I think uh, Richard Hell from television did um so what can you what can you tell me about that gig because I was like one of the first New York groups to come to uh, Cleveland punk wise I guess well, number one Peter spent a lot of time in New York um, now what he, I I know he didn't really have much connection with Richard Lloyd because Richard's told me some things but gotcha. um um but he would hang out he he was a you know he was sort of a big fan of television and he he wanted to get in the band which of course mean meant replacing richard lloyd which was never going to happen <laughs> yeah. um um and he he hung out with verlaine and them a lot and and wanted to wanted to get you know get involved um meanwhile <clears throat> yeah so um so television was booked i think it was their first really out really outside of the new york new york area gig and um and and i don't know i i don't you know maybe peter got us the gig maybe it was because of somebody i knew i frank because i knew everybody i mean frankly yeah. i mean i I, you know, but um, it may have been Peter. I can't remember. Um, whatever it was. Yeah, we did that. How was the gig? Uh, <laughs> oh, well, no. <laughs> um, Cheetah and the drummer were tripping, you know, and okay. the first, first chord of like Sonic Reducer, I think it was, he, Cheetah fell over on his butt and he says he didn't miss a beat i don't know but um you know so uh, richard later told me that he and tom verlaine were out walking after sound check and they said to each other this that's a really scary band <laughs> you know um and they were just sort of dumbfounded at what they had heard at sound check um but it was a it was a bit of a as far as we were concerned, a bit of a disastrous gig because of the the state of Cheetah and, right. and the drummer. Um, and so I was, me and Craig were pretty sure that that was it. We were done. And um, there was one more show that had been booked at the Viking Saloon and that, that would be the last one. But, um, you know, after that, uh, you know, after that episode, Certainly, Craig and I were miffed, um, yeah. to say the least. So um, that's how it was. I mean, you know, the show itself. I mean, when you hear tapes of it, it's like, well, well it's all right. But it's it, you know, yeah, it was all right. But it could have been something totally else. But there you go. That's the way life is. But I mean, Richard later joined you guys with a with a rocket from the tombs when you guys yep. re-recorded stuff and uh, did the, I think it was well, like for the reunion. Thousands. There was a the UCLA was putting on a three day festival of my music, just me, and 
you know, somewhere along the line between the, the guy at UCLA and I don't know, somebody said, well, why don't we, why don't we have a reunion of rocket from the tombs to open for, cause Perry was on the last night was sort of the, you know, the end of it, you know, and, yeah. um, and why don't we have rocket open for, you know, open up for Perubu And so Cheetah and I talked about it and, we needed a second guitar player and Cheetah was convinced that Richard Lloyd would be the ideal person. And so there you go. That's awesome. That's what, now he joined that scary band. Um, <laughs> so what led to, um, well, I mean, when he is, he and Tom were talking about it, going down, walking away from the Piccadilly Lloyd said to, to Tom, I really want to be in that band, you know, and you know, there you go. That's awesome. It's so serendipitous. <laughs> The circle comes around. That's awesome. Look, uh, Richard did a lot of stuff with like, um, with a lot of the bands in that scene. Like he did stuff with Glenn Morrow and Steve uh, uh, Steve Almas, I believe, and um, from uh, Suicide Commandos, who I talked to last week, by the way, and he sends his regards. Um, Hi. <laughs> um, but the okay. meeting is okay. Yeah, go on. I was gonna say, um, so Rocket from the Tombs split. And you and Peter did Perubu. A minute, just hang on. Well, what did that say? It said it's been upgraded by the host or something. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, go on. So, uh, uh, Rocket from the Tomb split. You and Peter went on to do Perubu. Um, so, the connection between you and Peter during that split musically and, like, um, at least influence-wise had be enough to continue this group. Can you can elaborate on like musically, maybe what you and Peter shared? Well, when, when, I, when I was, when it was clear to me that Rocket had run its course, um, I decided that um, I was going to start a new band and it was just going to record some things and that'd be the end of it. Um, I didn't, I was in no mood to do another band in Cleveland struggling to f play some gym on the West side, you know? Yeah. Um, At that point, I was pretty sure, no, I was, I had doubts about whether I wanted to work with Peter in this new band. Um, I had ended up in Rocket. I didn't, I, I, you know, I, I've never talked about it, but I, what do I care anymore? I'm old and Peter is dead and what's the difference? You know, is that I didn't like his songs. And I didn't like singing them. And um, eventually, so as not to make a big deal out of it, I just said, I don't want to be the singer anymore. Why don't, why don't, um, I'll just sing my songs and you guys, you know, you sing the, you know, you sing everything else and I'll play organ and saxophone and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, so, um, cause I didn't sing Peter's songs well, you know, he, you know, he would write a song that was supposed to be a Who song, and I was supposed to sing it like Roger Daltrey. Well, number one, I didn't believe in the song. I didn't right. believe in the sentiment and the words of the song. And I'm not about to go around and imitate Roger Daltrey or anybody. I mean, Roger yeah. Daltrey's a fine singer. I wish I could sing like him. But I, I don't, and I can't, and I won't. You know, so I just said, okay, well, um, I'm out. You know, I'll just... 
sing my songs and play stuff, you know. And then so Rocket breaks up and um, and I'm thinking about the new band and I know that I'm going to that I'm going to build the band around Tim Wright. Now, Tim, who is the sound man in Rocket, and he was a friend of mine and we did a lot of hanging out. And um, and I said to Tim, who didn't play anything, I said, pick an instrument, learn it, and we'll we'll, we'll put the band around together around you. You know, so he picked out a Dan Electro six string bass. And within about two months, he was playing it really at a very competent and creative level. And so, um, so I had it in my mind that, that it was me and Tim, and I was going to find other people. Now, when, you know, I was telling Peter about that as some social thing about my new band, Peter said he wanted in. Now, I, of course, had mixed feelings about it. I, I, of course, I'd be delighted. He was a good guitar player. You know, on the other hand, I just didn't want to go through what I had just gone through. Right. You know, one of the reasons why Peribu was set up to be, you know, a recording group, you know, as it were, you know, and not, we wouldn't, we weren't going to be a real band. We weren't going to play out and look for shows and have to fill up the set with songs that, you know, presumably I would have to sing or I'd have to stand there, you know, on stage, not doing anything, you know, which I was not prepared to do and, um, and on and on and on. So I was, I had, I was, I was, I had mixed feelings about it, but of course, Peter, you know, Peter was a good, good guitar player and um, the band was set up so that I wasn't going to run into that sort of problem again with it. So, so yeah, we had, so Peter joined up and it was the three of us and then, you know, all a bunch of people, you know, there was just a bunch of people at the living at the plaza, you know, Alan and Tom and Scott, you know, and so for various, various connections, we, you know, that all, those all came together and we rehearsed a couple things with the single was going to be final solution in 30 seconds over Tokyo. Now this was a single I had wanted to do and suggested in rocket from the tombs because they were both rocket songs. So back in April, or May of that year, 75, I said, let's, we need to put out a single, you know, and Peter said, yeah, we could do a cover of Wild in the Streets by Garland Jeffries. And I said, I am not going to do a cover version, a cover song, you know, it's going to be our material. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't pushing hard for those two, but it had to be our own material where I wasn't interested in wasting my time. You know, and so that sort of sat for a week or so. And Peter comes back and says, oh, we could do a cover of, you know, <laughs> Satisfaction. You know, and I'm saying, Peter, I am not doing it. You know, I'm, yeah. you know, if you want to do that stuff, then you put it together. You find the money and you deal with it. You know, I am out. You know, I'm not I'm not wasting my time. That's not the idea. That's not what's called for. You know, and so that sort of all d- died. You know, I wanted, and so when it came time for Peribu, I just wanted to get that single out, you know, right. and so it was going to be that single, and that was probably the end, you know, and during the rehearsals for it, 
somebody started jamming on some, maybe it was Tim, I don't know who, you know, on this, on doing, doing this jam of the thing that became heart and very quickly became heart of darkness. I think I had the words that I'd been working, I'd been working on them and, and, um, and that, you know, and I thought, oh, okay, well, we should have one of our, one of our own songs on it as opposed to just two rocket songs. So then once that was recorded, you know, we had, I still had Final Solution unrecorded and I wanted to record it. So I thought, okay, well, we'll do another one. We'll do another single, you know, and that was fine because, you know, it was still just a recording group. Gotcha. So it's interesting how it started off just as a recording group and then you guys started to get some, uh, yeah, attention from those singles or from that single, and that's what sparked the, the continue live? Well, we thought, we thought, okay, well, look, once once the record was done, everybody was kind of, I don't know if they were surprised, but they were certainly ple pleasantly pleased with with the outcome, that it was the band, the, the, band the, the sound was very different, and it was very satisfying. And we thought, oh, okay, well, look, look, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I had a thousand of them printed and, you know, a thousand sleeves that I sat there and uh, by myself glued every one of them together. And, um, and it was going to come out in December. And we thought, okay, well, why don't we do a, you know, like a promotional show at, at, at the Viking saloon, you know, just to, just to promote the release of the thing, you know, and, so everybody was into that and 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 um you know we sort of threw through a through enough material together to be able to do a do half a night and somebody i don't know who opened for us and that was that it makes sense that um and that went well that went well we recorded you know then we re very soon after recorded final solution and then the you know this notion of just you know, of, of having a band, you know, began to take hold. Who came up with a dumb surround for that first show? The what? Dumb surround. Dumb surround. Apparently, uh, the stage was set up different with the speakers behind the band. Oh, um, I don't know. Did we do that then? I can't remember. Um, that, uh, that's why I read that. For the first. I know that we certainly experimented with that, and especially in my solo bands later on. But I don't—I frankly don't remember. Gotcha. Does that like was that like a for it helped monitor having it come from behind you, or what was the what was the no, thought process? No, basically it was the notion of getting rid of monitors that gotcha. that you would play you would play to what you you know because most the standard way to to do a show is that you're all on stage. And all the speakers are shooting past you. Right. You know, they're you don't hear what you're doing. You I've never heard Perubu live, <laughs> you know, because I'm on stage. Right. And what you're getting is not what the audience is getting, you know. So yeah. um the notion of putting the you know, playing in front of the PA, you know, and all of that stuff is is to is to allow you to actually play to what you sound like. Now there's it's it, it it's it's you know partially effective it's it's useful it's a lot of trouble and um and i certainly in my solo work i i did a lot of experimenting with it but 
in the end, it just wasn't wasn't practical. Yeah, I imagine a lot of mic feedback, a lot of uh, other on stage. Yeah, There's problems. You have to be disciplined, and not everybody is disciplined. Okay, the kind of bounce back with Perubu, like, uh, with you guys, rehearsals were disciplined. Like it seemed the 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 chaos that that you guys capture is very precise and isn't it doesn't seem like it's randomly chosen but it seems like everything has a specific part a we pattern were, we placed were, we were very rehearsed i mean we we had nothing to do but rehearse you know rocket rocket had nothing to do but rehearse we rehearsed rocket five days a week you know um Perubu, i don't know if we ever got to five days a week but it was a lot we rehearsed a lot do you recall the the Perubu rules for success what do you mean? Um, there's a uh, list of r- rules I read that you guys had uh, yeah. <laughs> for success. Do you recall any of those? Well, I don't know. I wrote them all down on the <laughs> website. So if, you know, if pressed, and I never used my memory, I could probably remember them all. But uh, I was going to ask if um... so they're not something that exists outside my day to day existence. So, yeah, you, you don't. You know, basically the notion was that you don't try to be, you don't seek commercial success. You, you know, you seek artistic fulfillment and and commercial success, if it's going to come, will come from that, not from seeking it. You know, at least certainly for us, there was no hope that anybody would ever, you know, you also have to understand there was no hope for us, you know, particularly with Rocket less so with Perubu because of the singles, you know, and that's why I wanted to damn do a single and rocket, you know, but, yeah. um, but um, um, there was no hope that anybody would ever hear us, you know, which is why I determined to do a recordings band, you know, that at least somebody would hear us, you know, um, it, it was pretty, pretty pointless unless you thought that playing a, junior high school gym out on the far west side was worth your effort was worth five days rehearsal a week you know which frankly i i wouldn't i wouldn't agree that it was yeah was that that berea gig oh i don't know we played a (laughs) played a bfw hall out in berea and this gym i don't even remember where it was it was something like westlake or one of those places i i really don't remember was that that was Rocket, not Perubu? Rocket. Gotcha. Did it pan out? Because I, I don't know. I don't know. I... <laughs> no, we did the show. I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure pe- people hated us, and I'm sure people loved us. You know, it was like it was like anything with Rocket. You know, it was. You know, it, it was not not something that uh, that you you know. Yeah. There was very little middle ground with Rocket. You loved it or you hated it. You know, it was one of the two. Yeah, well, that that the I would I don't know if you labeled you guys. Or probably punk wasn't a thing. It was becoming a thing. So either you were coming for something you thought was punk, or you're not even sure how to handle it. Well, no, I mean we were uninterested in punk. Punk was clearly a a, a commercial operation. You know, uh, dedicated to selling fashion and right. accessories. You know, so. I was not interested in punk. Other people were, but I, I had nothing, nothing to say about it. You know, there's, there was some interesting bands that would have been interesting bands 
whether they were called punk or not, you know. Um, and I'm sure in England, there's a wholly different, well, I know there's a wholly different viewpoint of the whole thing, yeah. you know, which, because it's all linked in with society and politics and all this other stuff that has to do with England. America is not England, you know. England is just a pokey little out of the way island in the middle of nowhere that frankly isn't very important other than the fact that they speak English and have talented people, you know. Um, uh, but as far as all the socio-political stuff about punk, I I was I was aware of it, but I was uninterested. It, it, it had no relevance to me, you know. Right. I mean, we were we were carrying on the MC5. Now, the MC5 had relevance to me and to others, you know, and that they were a a great band. B they taught me everything about rock music that I ever would need to know, and still to this day, it's the only lesson you need. You know, you get to kick out the jams album and you study it, you know, and you memorize every note of it and every every dynamic. And that's all you will ever have to know about rock music, period. Well said. You did work with Wayne later on, right? With uh, yeah, the Pennsylvania sure. tour. How was that? Officially a member of the band because he, he played a, well, another one of these festivals that was put on about my music. He, he, he stepped in with Perubu and did a show. Um, and then, then I played with the MC5 and Sun Ra Orchestra, yeah. Orchestra in, in London. And that was highly groovy. And, you know, it was one of those moments after the show, I was backstage and all the Sun Ra people were saying, you're a real blues man. You know, right? That's awesome. <laughs> like, these Sun Ra guys say, you're a real blues man going is like, geez, you know, you know, it's like, kill me now. I'm done. You know, but, um, um no uh, yeah we we're, we're friends you know one of one of his one of somebody once reported it to him that i i i i, I described you know i described the taunt that i heard the that kick out the jams album about 20 years later after not uh-oh lost you Yes. I don't know how much of that you missed. I'm going to have to give you my phone. Oh, man. You've got all this being recorded and everything okay, have you? Yeah, yeah, I got it, except for uh, w what we lost when I... Um, we were just talking about MC5 and then uh, Kick Out the Jams hey, I album. Can't, I can't sit here and repeat what I just said, so I you know. have to take it from here. Oh, man. So, <laughs> yeah. You uh, just got the compliment of all compliments coming straight from the source. The Sun Ra group was just saying that you're a real bluesman, and then yeah, well, I yeah, well, that's enough. That's all you need to know. I know that's you but know? that's that's so cool. And then this, you were uh, you were describing how the um, kick out the jams is the perfect rock album, and how the yeah. lesson from that. Well, and somebody then I described how somebody had gone to Wayne and said. You know that I had said because I then I talked about my wife getting me the CD. Did you get that? Nope, that's where we left off. Okay, well, twenty years after, twenty years later, after I hadn't heard the album for twenty years, my wife gets me buys me the CD, which has just come out. You know, and I listen to it. I'm sitting there listening to it, and I turned to her and I say, 
this thing is a mess. You know, it's all out of tune. They're not playing together. It's a mess, you know? Yeah. And, and, and then I realized that none of that matters. You know, the audience doesn't care. The audience only cares about the feel, the groove right. of it. Right. And, and it's got the groove and it doesn't matter, you know? And I said something like that in an interview and somebody went to Wayne Kramer and went, David Thomas from Perubu said to kick out the jams is a mess. You know, and Wayne said, Wayne replied, he's right. It's a mess, you know. And so I can't remember. That was about the end of that. But that, that kind of goes back to, to, to working at Sumo with Paul. Like, it's about the feel. It's capturing the whole That's thing. That's right. That's right. Well, That's... you know, everything I ever say is all connected. I haven't changed at all you know, in 40, 50 years. Everything I believed then, I believe to this day. The music that came out then in the 70s that was I considered to be crap, I still consider to be crap. Now, Kirstie, you were just talking to, is a huge Queen fan. She loves Queen. She and her sister, her sister still goes to all the Queen reunion things, you know, with whoever's singing with them, you know. I thought Queen was crap, you know, and 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 I still think they're crap, you know, and it, it simply doesn't matter that the only thing Kirstie likes is Queen and Aerosmith, who I also thought were crap, were less crap yeah. than Queen, but were <laughs> crap, you know, so, you know, I haven't, everything I thought then, I think now, just maybe more detailed, but right. that's about it. It's interesting, like, some of the records that move you at an early age and how deeply they resonate with you and how that carries on. Um, yes, of course. Can you talk about uh, Captain Beefheart? You, you worked what with, about him? Now, those records resonated with you from an early age, from what I understand. And, like, you worked with their keyboard player for a while around the same time yeah. you were working with uh, Well, Wayne. he was their bass player at the time, but whatever. He was yeah. playing keyboards with us. Okay. So how was that? Did the did um uh, were Wayne and uh his name was Eric, were they able to uh Eric were they able to hop into the Perubu uh um uh, I don't know, everybody cog? who's in Perubu is into Perubu. Right. I mean, you know, I mean Wayne was a fan, Eric was a fan before they were in the band, you know. The only people who are gonna play in Perubu are people who love Perubu. You know, that's right. why I say, you know, it's one of the reasons behind the rule. You never audition anybody. Yeah. If you want to be in the band, you're in the band, you know, if we need you, you know, um, because nobody joins Perubu to have a career or to be success to be successful or to have an easy life. It ain't going to happen. It's clear that it's not going to happen. But people want to be in Perubu because of what we achieve together. Right. And so, so, you know, yeah, they, you know, I, I had met Eric at a fest. You know, I was on a solo thing with, in, in Southern Italy. And I met Eric and the, he was playing with snake finger and it was about two days before snake finger died. And, um, you know, I met Eric in the elevator, you know, we chatted briefly and then, you know, I don't know. Then years later, we needed Eric, and I gave him a call, and he said, "Yeah, hell yeah." That's awesome. It's well, I just meant just because they came from uh, their individual project uh, projects. Maybe not as much Captain Beefheart, 
But like it's a different than hopping in Perubu because you you guys have like such a, or I guess how you can it seems so pattern oriented in a in a way or or breaking the pattern as far as like it's uh, nice. what it seems What'd you like say? very pattern oriented in Perubu. What does that mean? Pattern like pattern like finding different patterns and breaking patterns of the norm. Patterns. patterns right. Right. You're right. It's yeah, seen... yeah, we're we're a Midwest rock band, groove rock band. Yeah, you know, it's pa- it's all patterns, it's all geometry, it's all relationships of one thing to another. That's that's what it's all about, you know. Um, Tom famously said, "The best guitar part's the one that requires you to move your fingers the least." That's you good. know, yeah. so well said. you know, it's all about you know, two two chords and the will to rock. You know, yeah, it's 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 all patterns. It's it's dead simple. You know, it's it's basically extremely straightforward, and and very obvious. You know, it's you know the only thing that's not obvious is that you know sometimes just you know one sometimes the pattern recalls you to drop. You know, there's eight beats in a in a measure. You know, that drop the seven beat you know i mean drop the eighth beat you know and that's but that's all you know once you know that it's all simple and or it requires you to you know to move the you know you might be you know you might be accenting the two and the four and then the next section you accent the one and the three you know it's 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 all you know it's all incredibly simple basic stuff right but basic stuff goes a long way just like basic parameters oh yeah um, well, yeah. So we're not one of these progressive bands that makes up a, you know, plays lots of notes and complicated time scales. It's not. It has no interest for us. Was well, in the this that's like a different type of pattern that's disrupted with that type of playing with a almost like the gymnastic approach to like playing in seven and running like sixteenth note lines. Like that's a different. We're a, we're a midwestern. We're a midwestern groove rock band. We learned everything from the MC5. You know, it's it's, you know, it's basically or or you might say the Velvets, but the, right. for me the MC5 was more important, or more fundamental, or the Stooges was more fundamental. You know, so it's all it's all like that. It's just it's just simple. You know, I mean, it's got a groove. You you play the groove and you pile a bunch of shit on top. You right. know, and there you go. Did the, that's it. Um, what about the numbers band? Kind of keep on the idea of patterns. How much? How much did they influence you guys as far as like a? Well, the numbers band was the best there was ever going to be. You know, and Robert Kidney and Jack Kidney are the best that's ever going to be. You know, and so you would go down and see them and and understand just how far behind them you were. You know, <laughs> so. Um, you know, they don't do anything like what we do, but that's not the point. Right. You know, the point is that that they're they're a magical group, and you know, again, they they're a group that you know they don't count stuff out. You know, it's all based on cues from Robert. Right. You know, he cues everything in that band with just a flick of his hand or or a note or something, and they know that it's the next it's the next section that is a very radical way of playing it's much more jazz like or something than than anything else you know than rock you know because right. rock's not based on that stuff you know it 
Very few people actually react to each other in rock music. It's just all plotted out, and you you play the riff, you know, you play the gig, you know, you play the section. Yeah, like this is the part where you go louder. It's interesting that the numbers band didn't. I don't know, not counting out the numbers. I like I know numbers uh, with their with just with their title in general has a has a bigger meaning to the the concept or the uh, numerical like placement of blues music. Um, but I kind of wanted to shift gears, um, and talk about synesthesia. Yeah. It's just going to go on much longer because I'm, I'm starting nope. to run out of yeah, no. the will to live here. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I appreciate your you time. Can start, if you can start thinking about, you know, wrapping it up, that would, I would appreciate yeah, that. For sure. Um, um, so what do you want to know? Um, what, when did that first occur that you had that and what's that look like? Or what's that sound like to you? Or what's music like? Well, to you? It, it never, it didn't, uh, didn't pop into my head one day. It just all of a sudden I realized somewhere around the beginning of the nineties, from from a series of circumstantial events, that I actually don't hear sound the way other people hear sound. Now, I, I if I had thought about it for a while, or been more 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 observant, I would have picked this up by now, by you know, by then. But it, you know, it was. It became clear to me that I don't hear the way other people hear, you know. And so, and this, so I, you know, and I began to analyze it and think about what I'm actually sensing, and realize that what I quote unquote hear is actually a geometric relationship of all the sound exists as a, as a as a complex ge- or not geometry in my head and i i hear geometry i don't hear you know i hear you know notes and melodies and all that sort of stuff you know obviously i hear them but they don't i not inter they don't i don't like melody i don't like notes i don't like you know i don't like all this stuff i i you know, I can't tell one note from another. They're all, they all sound exactly the same. I did this long study, you know, at Suma and at, at home on my own, diff, trying to differentiate notes because most people can tell what's a D or a D flat or this or that or the other. So I was sitting there, you know, and studying the notes. You know, I'd have one note playing over and over and over. And I began to realize that, in fact, every note has every other note as a part of it, you know, and that and that and that the D is actually also got the A in it and the G and the whatever else, you know, they're all in there, you know, and and all of all of the range of frequencies are in there, you know, so I could never tell one note from another unless it was set in a in a in a particular in a, in in any acoustic environment. Hmm. And once it's in an acoustic environment, I can I can I can pick out everything just as easily as anybody else can. You know, it's just yeah. that on their own, just alone, you know, it means nothing to me. It's just you know, it's just something. It's you know, it's like re- if I'm saying I hear geometry, 
And if you're just getting one note, then the, the actual geometry of that is so brutally basic right. that it's unrecognizable. It's like the, in school, we had, we studied this book about, you know, that somebody had written this a theoretical mathematical exercise on two-dimensional beings. Now, what would a two-dimensional world be like? You know, and I can't remember the name of the book. It was very interesting and very, you know, I'm sure it's been dropped from the curriculum, but, you know, what the hell, you know. But, um, um, you know, and so so one note on its own is like with that two-dimensional, that story of the two-dimensional world. I mean, means, you know, it, yeah. you know, in a three-dimensional universe, two dimensions don't mean much. Right. Interesting. So when it's in an acoustic environment, all these pitches come to life. But when it's not, it's like, so do you, is it, is it literally like a shape or is it just dull? Is it just like a, like it's a geometric relationships? I right. can't explain it. It's, you know, it's like you, you, you tell me which, you know, what, you know, you explain hearings, right. you explain right. sound the way you hear it to me. You can't do it. It's, exactly. It's, I always assume that everybody are, was the same, the heard the same way. And then I realized, I began to realize that they don't, you know, and that I hear differently, you know. So, you know, I don't know. You just, it's, it's just what I am. You know, I can't explain it to you. That's fascinating. What is, you know, tell That's me, explain the color green. You know, how yeah. you can explain green to somebody. Right, right. You can't see green. Yeah. No, that's super interesting because you could take the very like, well, it's these fragments of light going through this and like, but that doesn't really explain what. It doesn't describe yeah. green. Right. It can okay. So there was a, there's a woman I worked with a lot named Lindsay Cooper in my solo career a lot. Right. And she, she was synesthetic in that she, she, she was a bassoon player and sax player, very, very accomplished, but she, she, would only could only perceive sound as a color, you know, and so she would hear color, and and that's that's generally far more far more um, common widespread yeah. than than geometry, you know, than the, the the things that I hear. But no, she would hear color, you know, and so you try to get her to tell you tell you what it was like, what it's like, and you know, how are you gonna how you how. How can you, she'd say, well, it sounds like color, you know, yeah. and, you know, I perceive color. And so that's about as far as you can go. It's just one of those things. Interesting. That's, um, does Coltrane's music resonate at all with that? Because a lot of that was composed with, like, the thought of, like, geometry. Well, I don't know. I like Coltrane. I'm not, I'm not really a jazz guy because jazz, frankly, has terrible vocals. The singing is terrible in jazz, and so, well, in my opinion, you know. And so, um, I just, you know, I like Coltrane. I like, um, well, I could reel off a bunch of names, you know, but um, uh, I, I like the standard sort of things that you're supposed to like, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I like stuff that I've never heard before. It's just I like it, but I, I don't have any kind of passion for it. With a synesthesia did it make it like hard to perform or like did it make it hard to like be able to like f like fit into like uh 
because you've never really done covers or anything like that. You've always done them in your own way. And like, since you've always heard stuff in your own way, is that like there like it make no sense why why to even to attempt to do someone else's? Like, I guess my well, question number is one, number one, why why do something that somebody else has done yeah. better? You yeah, know, so I, I don't see the point of that. Um, you know, now I do covers from time to time of things, uh, songs that I like. I like the words or I like something about them. But I'm not going to sit there and do it the way somebody else has done it because I just simply don't see the point. And I'm not, I'm not Roger Daltrey, you know, right. as much as I'd like to be. You know, I always wanted to be John Bon Jovi. If I could have, if I was thin and had a good voice, I would have been John Bon Jovi, you know, but I'm not, I've got what I got. And, 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 and so, you know, it's, right. it's a difference between what you would personally like to do and what, you know, and what your body and personality, is he Man. still, is yeah, he I'm, here. Off I'm again? still here. No, no, you've been here. You've been here. No, the audio, audio has been there the whole time. I just, I didn't want to stop you because I, 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 I agree with authenticity and really immersing yourself, and that's super inspiring to take what you got and do the most with it because a lot of people are judging themselves on other people and how they can be more like them, where realistically we yep. should be immerse, uh, immersing ourselves and being the best self we can be because ultimately any knowledge we achieve of, of our surrounding around us is self-knowledge. And we want to well, yeah. So that. I mean, the pro the missing the missing thing from that equation is that you have to be very disciplined, very analytical, right. and avoid self-expression. That you have to always be suspicious of what you're doing, you know, and you have to judge it very harshly, and you have to be very, very disciplined. But with those provisos, what you're saying, I agree with. Was it discipline is definitely a huge factor of it, and especially with music because you're constantly listening to yourself. Even now, you're going back and you're listening to stuff you've done before, and it's interesting, like um, uh, kind of that divide between the doing music as in a way self-expression in art, as opposed to trying to do it like in do covers. Like I know Peter pitched that at first for the first few singles. But it makes much more sense with everything that you guys committed to doing you and doing what you guys done. Um, well, there wasn't any point to exactly. doing a cover version. Here we no, are in I the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere, no hope. You know, the only hope we have is that somebody from somewhere else can hear us. Right. The only way you're going to do that is with your own material, not with cover versions. And uh, to kind of wrap things up, I really appreciate your time and appreciate your uh, um, your insights and sharing your experience with me. Um, now, now, like people put out covers like it's nothing you, they, on YouTube. They can on Facebook Live and they can put it out and get some attention and maybe get their bar gig they wanted because someone heard them do the Rolling Stones cover. But you guys are doing DPK TV as a way to counteract this. Um, this pandemic and immerse yourself in the online presence and engage your audience that way. And, um, so can you elaborate a little bit what's going on? You got some really cool, um, lyric library videos and really cool interaction and sharing well, concert you clips. Know, um, what's good. You know, what, you know, when the pandemic started, everybody was going on and we're going to, you know, started live streaming themselves playing 
banging on an acoustic guitar sitting on their couch. Yeah, they did. I'm not interested in that. That that means nothing to me. So Kirsty and I began to think about thing, things and what we would do in a live stream situation. And um, we decided to put a show to, you know, we're going to do, you know, I was very influenced by Gulardi. Nice. And what okay. I, you know, what he, you know, how he would do something, and um, I don't know. Can you add anything that uh, so DPK? How we, what we decided to do? We wanted to put together a, a something that was truly entertaining and informative, rather than a a something for our own ego. Yeah, you know, something that was going to be positively entertaining that even if you didn't like Perubu, you could watch it. Oh, yeah, her, her, uh, her sister does not like Perubu, but she doesn't miss a, a second of the show, the DPK, because she finds it all wildly entertaining, you know, and she yeah. hates Perubu, you know. <laughs> well, it's fun because you, you guys are having fun. I watched all of January and, like, you, it, you're sharing what the fans love about Perubu and you're celebrating their their interest which is cool one i think as soon as you get people involved they're automatically going to love it more and like you guys are having fun and you're cueing well, the buttons and... i think it's very important to note that uh, the vast majority of Perubu fans say that they've always felt like outsiders for right. liking Perubu because their their passion for the group runs very very deep and what we have now is pretty much you know a, a great group of people who are meeting three out of four Sundays from all over the world from Iceland to Australia and are enjoying the group experience of meeting each other and just enjoying well, they them. carry on these things you know talking to each other past the show I mean you know they you know it, I don't like the word I hate the word but it's you know, it's a community sort of yeah. thing, you know, and um, and they're sitting down with their wives and their kids, you know, so they're sharing their passion or whatever firsthand. And these people who may have rolled their eyes about dad putting a Peribu CD on in the car, are suddenly <laughs> saying, yeah, that, that's pretty entertaining. We enjoy it, too, you know. So, I mean, eventually we'll move into live music, but it will be done properly. It will be done properly with the audience experience in mind, not our own experience or ego. I hate singing. I really, really hate singing. So I'm, I am the last person in the world who's going to want to sit there, sitting on a couch, banging on a guitar or accordion or whatever I bang on, and, and singing. I just don't like it. It's a waste of my time. I'd rather do anything else, you know, but I've started these things, you know, and I I've only done one so far but this 4 a.m files you know where because i wake up at 4 a.m there's nothing going on so i'm i've yeah. got two or three hours to myself you know and i'm just gonna uh, you know hopefully we'll continue to just wake up and say oh i'm gonna do this you know and put bang you know bang some stuff together and and, and film it live you know and we'll see where that goes i mean and I'm, you know, we're we're heading towards doing some live things, but it's, you know, we're sort of looking at everybody else, knowing what we don't want to do, 
and slowly coming to a realization of what we can and do right. want to do. And I'll tell you what else as well. Sorry to butt in again, but this, no, to me, not, not David, but to me was a very important factor is that I've only been around the band, I don't know, for the past decade or so, and I've only been managing the band for the past, I think, six years or something. And there is so much bullshit around the band. There are so many urban myths that have taken on their own life and, and somehow been cast as truth. And here's David, who is, as you will have noticed in the past hour or so, a brilliant raconteur yeah. who, whilst being polite and respectful to everybody, tells the truth. And I think this is, this is a real opportunity for the people who give a damn to actually find out the truth. And that must be, I think, a pretty rare experience for any band. Definitely. And I think one, to, to give truth and be, be honest about it and be polite, it's a tricky thing to do. It's not an easy thing to manage. So this it's is easy. It's <laughs> a lot easier than, you know, the truth is always simple. It's the lie, which it gets complicated and, and convoluted, you know, yeah. just the truth is simple. You know, we just go on and we don't pretend to do, you know, I don't know. We just, we just turn the cameras on and start talking and showing some of Kirstie's videos. And Kirstie is a very brilliant video maker. You know, she totally, you know, I don't know what she would do without archive.org, but, um, you know, it's, it's what it is. I'm really tired. I'm kind of have something to eat. So can we wrap this up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you guys so much. Um, as, side note, Kirstie, you do a really good job with the website. The website's really well done for anyone who's... Oh, room. That's, the website's all me. He's, he's uh, okay, David, you, it's really well done. You guys do a really amazing job of documenting Ubu history and sharing it and debunk it, debunking these myths and putting, putting it out there what exactly each piece was going for it's really like i've dove into a lot of groups and dove into their histories and ubu's a next level as far as like i was overwhelmed with how much i can get into in a good way so and there's a lot more to come i mean i tell you i've been i've got a i've got my back my old studio in the back room is so full of shit you know <laughs> that you have no concept of the from, tapes from and... the very very first rehearsals from rocket that's to awesome Monday. You that's... know, and it's going to take decades to go through it all. But that's another thing that DPK TV is doing. It's bringing out that archive and telling the truth about it. We did a fantastic couple of shows about the tenement year, and we had the new band members or new newish band members, along with Alan Ravenstein, Tony Marmoni, and Chris Cutler, talking about that album and reimagining it with nice. new new takes on the songs. I mean, it's exciting. Is that kind of leading what um, what Ubu's going to do next? You were going to record the next No, one. I mean, we're starting a new album, which I haven't explained to anybody okay. in the band yet because they're going to be scared by the oh, idea. But, we... um, but um, you know, there's a new, there'll be a new album. But for the moment, you know, with the lockdown and the pandemic and all that sort of stuff, it's really difficult to get people together you know, because everybody's concerned with their health, obviously. Right. And and they're just doing inoculations now. Well, they've got, I don't know, 100 million inoculated so far in England. So, what is, what is it? 
18 million. 18 million have been inoculated. I've been inoculated. Other people in the band are are either inoculated or about to be inoculated who live in England. So by with a couple more months, you know, in theory, you know, things will be different, but we'll see. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see what that's going to be. Uh, I appreciate your guys' time. This has been awesome. Awesome.